This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Birth control. Ho Chi Minh. Richard Nixon back again. Moonshot. Woodstock. Watergate. Punk rock. Begin. I'm begging you. Let's begin. Hello again, and welcome to episode 104 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that recklessly adopts Billy Joel's hit song as our marching orders to the biggest headlines, heroes, and villains of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. And I'm Tom Fordyce. Tom, how did we get to where we are today? Because Billy thinks it might have something to do with Menachem Begin. Imprisoned by the Soviets, orphaned by the Holocaust, sixth prime minister of Israel, Nobel Peace Prize winner, disgraced by the Lebanon War, tireless fighter for the Jewish people. Any uh, initial impressions? Based on that grab bag right there, Tom? It sounds to me, Casey, like Billy has done a classic Billy thing and arrowed in on a hugely important figure <laughs> in world history. Safe to say. Is that a really fancy, hyperbolic way of saying that you know nothing about the topic? At this point, yes, Katie. But I'm glad to say we are joined by someone who can fill our brains with plenty of knowledge about this man, and that is Henry Abramson, lecturer in Jewish history and thought and dean of Turo University in Brooklyn, New York. Henry, you join us from your office in in Brooklyn. We can get a lovely little bit of Brooklyn ambiance in the background as well. Welcome to We Didn't Start the Fire. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be with you. So where is the best place to start? Because sometimes you look at someone's early years and you can't necessarily see a reason for the person that they become in adulthood. But with Menachem Begin, everything that he goes on to do seems to have its roots in his extraordinary early years. Oh, I think that's a very fair assessment of... Uh where to start with Menachem Begin. Uh, he was born in 1913 in the Eastern European part of the uh, Russian Empire, uh, which was a, a place where there was tremendous uh, change going on in the Jewish community in particular. A whole host of new political movements were arising and, and he sort of experimented with several until he settled on one particular philosophy that dominated the rest of his uh, personal and professional life. And what about his background? What kind of kid was he? What, what drove him? Did he have any particular hobbies? You know, I don't know what kind of hobbies he might have had, but I can't. Uh, you can probably hear the streets of Brooklyn behind me right now. Very atmospheric. The, <laughs> that was actually, we, we have these uh, parades of uh, young men on motorcycles that like to pick up the front wheel and go <laughs> racing down. Ah, oh, youth. Uh, and that yeah, was probably youth. the kind of kid that Menachem Begin was, I imagine. <laughs> actually, I would say quite the opposite. Uh, he experimented a little bit with like a, a neo-communist kind of ideology called Hashomer Hatzair, but his life was altered forever with the, his encounter with a man named Vladimir Jabotinsky who articulated a philosophy of Jewish history and of Jewish politics that he would adopt and exemplify for the rest of his life. And I understand that he had some early skills as an organizer and an orator. He, was, he had the gift of the gab. Absolutely. He was fluent in several languages, including English. And he was known for his uh, punctilious attention to dress and appearance. This is also, by the way, a reflection of his mentor's uh, ideology known as Hadar, which is this notion in Hebrew of like uh, sort of beauty and glory and self-respect. Oh, he, I love this. It's almost like yeah. a, like a legitimate dandyism. 
yeah, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with the word dandyism, but if you, <laughs> if you compare him, for example, if you look at other Israeli politicians of his era, and, you know, they're priding themselves on wearing uh, open-necked shirts and, uh, you know, sort of proletarian wear, but he would never be seen without a suit and tie, always speaking very precisely and carefully, crafting his speeches and so on. He really embodied that kind of idea of you have to look the way you want everyone to appreciate you. Now, parts of this story, Katie, remind me a little bit, if you can cast your mind a long way back in our podcast of the episode that we did about Joseph Stalin. And you might remember that we spoke to Alex Halberstadt, yes. whose grandfather had been one of Stalin's bodyguards. And we both loved Alex's book, which told you a lot about what it was like growing up as a Jewish person. So this, Henry, feels like a particularly abhorrent period in history where if you are a Jewish person at that time, you are being punched by the left and you're being punched by the right. Yeah, you know, as, as my father, my blessed memory would say, uh, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. I think uh, that particular trope of, uh, you know, Jewish uh, perception in the world persists even into the 21st century. But it was definitely a, a very pronounced phenomenon of the 1930s, where Jews were widely associated with communism. And at the same time, uh, socialists associated Jews with capitalism. Jews caught in the middle of these two kind of very divergent uh, trends uh, tried to articulate several different political ideologies for themselves that encompassed a whole range of ideologies, including the particular flavor of Zionism to which uh, Menachem Begin was attached. So I'm wondering if you can put us in the picture of what was going on in Palestine towards the end of World War II. Who was living there? Who controlled it? What were the conflicts at play? This is uh, definitely not a simple topic, and it <laughs> remains complex to the present day. But if I can walk us back just a little bit earlier, and then it'll be easier to understand what was going on when Machen Begum arrived in the uh, early 40s. The era of the uh, late 19th century was characterized by a nationalist awakening that swept across Eastern Europe. Um, the Ukrainians, the Balts, the Poles, everyone was kind of like waking up to their national identities, and the Jews were among them as well. And one of the movements that really captured the Jewish imagination was later called by this political term Zionism, which meant a return to the land of Israel and the establishment of a national home there. Jews, of course, have always looked to that piece of global real estate as their ancestral home. But until the late 19th century, it was considered only a place where Jews could go, for example, to retire uh, or to study. But the idea of reestablishing a political entity under Jewish auspices was considered a kind of a heresy uh, because the idea was this was going to have to wait until the Messiah arrives, that the exile of the Jews after the first Roman Jewish war in the first century was supposed to be permanent until the Messiah came. But in the late 19th century, a lot of especially more secular Jews began to say, well, wh why are we waiting for the Messiah if we believe in the Messiah? Let's just go take that land and reestablish our Jewish national home. So there's a whole spectrum of reasons for this. Some felt like, for example, Theodor Herzl, who was considered really the father of modern political Zionism, that the Jews needed that land as a refuge from anti-Semitism. Uh, he was quite prophetic in this regard. But on the other hand, he was not totally tied to the idea 
of the land called Palestine. He was at one point prepared to accept Uganda, for example, as an wow. alternative. Yeah, that was pretty wild. Um, but he was shouted down by the uh, masses of Russian Jews who felt, you know, we cannot possibly, you know, switch to some other land. We have to be going back to our ancestral homeland. Theodor Herzl had kind of like a secular political Zionism. There were religious versions of Zionism. There were socialist versions of Zionism and so on. And they're all coming together in this land. The tiny, let's say pre-1880 population of Jews were overwhelmed by a much larger population of Arabs who did not necessarily identify themselves as Palestinians specifically. That particular term really develops in the 20th century as the Arabs somewhat, you know, maybe half a century later than Eastern Europe, also go through their own period of national awakening and start to think of themselves as Egyptians or as Syrians or as Lebanese specifically. The Jews start moving to Israel in greater numbers from the 1880s onward. And this accelerates in the 20th century as there's a lot of violence going on in the Russian Empire, which is where the bulk of Jews live at this time. By the time we get to the, uh, the 1930s, there is a full-on clash between the Arabs living in the region, uh, the Jews who, for most of them, were like immigrants to the region, and the British who were, of course, in charge of that part of the world after World War I ceded it to them as a mandate. And it was like a, a pressure cooker of many different national aspirations, deeply resentful of the British presence. This is like kind of late British colonialism and uh, no immediate solution in sight. And that's sort of the atmosphere. Oh, and let's add, by the way, World War II. Yes. Don't forget that right. little detail. So that's the period when Begin, who was actually arrested by the Soviets and sent to the Gulag, was later released because uh, Germany attacked the Soviet Union. They decided all of those Poles that they arrested might be allies. And he made his way from the Soviet Union to Israel and landed there in the middle of World War II. So weirdly, he had the Germans to thank for his freedom and the beginning of his career in what became Israel. Correct. And just so we can get a sense of his motivations and what he had experienced, just describe briefly, Henry, what was going on where he had been born, what was happening to Jewish people when he had managed to escape to Palestine. You know, it's interesting. His mentor, Vladimir Jabotinsky, who I referenced earlier, actually was one of the few prescient individuals who, in the 1920s, predicted the Holocaust. However, he predicted it slightly wrong. He assumed that the Poles would be leading the Holocaust. He felt that the level of anti-Semitism in Poland was so intense that uh, clearly there was going to be some kind of massive genocidal movement. So he was, you know, half right, as it were. Begin was deeply, you know, I could say shaped, maybe I would say scarred by Jabotinsky's vision of the world, which was one in which the non-Jewish world was fundamentally toxic and dangerous, and that the only way that Jews could hope to eke out any mode of survival was if they were to take it for themselves. This is ironic in that it was one major exception. Jabotinsky had a very good relationship with the Ukrainians, uh, which was not typical of that period, but he viewed the Ukrainians of that era, the 1910s, the 1920s, as being locked in the same kind of struggle that the Jews were. And so with the exception of bracketing out that one little 
unusual moment of Ukrainian-Jewish cooperation, Jabotinsky felt that the rest of the world is never going to give the Jews anything. The Jews must therefore take it for themselves. And that shaped Begin's view of what was going on in the land of Israel at that time, known as Palestine, the British mandate at that time. He felt that the, the only way that anything could be done is if the Jews uh, you know, adopted military means to do so. Does Begin know what has happened to his, his family? How long does it take the news of the death of his father and his mother and his older brother to get through? I'm not positive of the specific dates that he learned about their specific fates, but by 1942, the rest of the world knew exactly what was going on in the death camps. In fact, as my colleague, uh, Dr. Samuel Castle points out, by 1942, we knew the color of the ceramic tiles in the gas chambers. Ah. So it's widely known as a result of one particular escapee from the death camp of Chelmno who smuggled himself back into the Warsaw Ghetto and then released information about what he had seen. It was even published in the New York Times. Wow, as early as that. Yeah, yeah, which is in itself, you know, worth a podcast episode, in my humble opinion. For sure. So how is it that Begin gets himself over to Palestine and on his mission? He was very active in the uh, hugely consequential Zionist debates that were happening in Poland in the 1930s. He was the considered the prime student of Vladimir Jabotinsky, and he represented the movement that Jabotinsky had started called revisionism. So he was already a well-known figure as a Zionist before he left Poland. So when he came to Israel, he was already a well-known figure, speaking the relevant languages, perfectly prepared to uh, put in place the teachings of his mentor and uh, forcibly evicting the British from the land and, and ready to do battle with the Arabs living there as well. And who was uh, who was already in charge? Was was David Ben-Gurion already running the show? Well, actually, whenever you get a group of Jews together, it's very hard to identify who is precisely running the show. <laughs> uh, you know, just look at the Israeli elections over the past few years that have been repeated every few months because we can't quite decide. But I will say that the dominant political movement, which never really achieved a full majority, was this sort of left-wing Eastern European Ashkenazi elite, which was very socialist-leaning. They were associated with a party called Poaletzion, which means the Workers of Zion. And they had this ideology which sort of envisioned a peaceful transition of cooperation with the indigenous peoples. Arabs and Jews would live side by side in a socialist, atheistic kind of society. And uh, Ben-Gurion was associated primarily with that movement. And that was really like the main political movement of the day. And in fact, Menachem Begin, if we scroll ahead a few decades, he is the fulcrum of the turning point where Israel rejects that for the first time uh, with his election in 1977. It was really a huge change for the state of Israel to move from that sort of left-wing, socialist-leaning, uh, anti-clerical Ashkenazi elite to Begin, who found a way to bring into his coalition the Sephardim, that is the Jews of Middle Eastern descent, and there were quite a few of them in Israel, they were a silent majority, and the religious parties who felt disenfranchised by the socialist orientation. 
This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello Fire listeners, it's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So last night I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon. It was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm very interested in the fact that the founding of Israel was uh, secular and left wing. And I'm wondering if there was a sense that they needed to kind of uh, maybe be as neutral as possible, given the fact that there was so much negative attention on Jews and their culture and their religion. So maybe was there a sense of like, let's just like be on the the down low? Well, I would say that for the... uh the ruling Ashkenazi, they were true believers. I mean, they really felt that it was okay to, let's say, get together for a Passover celebration, but they generally felt that religion had gone way too far, had created a kind of a defective model of Jewish muscular masculinity, let's say, and that they wanted to get rid of this kind of ghetto Jew, this pasty, scholarly, thin individual who could not hold a gun. That was what they wanted to get away from. They were true believers in that. 
Begin represented sort of a return to more of a center where religion was more welcome in uh, public life and things like that. Was there an idea that they that they didn't want to be kicked around anymore? So hence the kind of like we can take care of ourselves. And, Absolutely, uh, that I think was shared by both sides of this political divide. If I can, can I just take us back for one second to give one kind of general idea that's really important to understand when we're talking about the state of Israel? And I'll I'll use these terms, by the way, carefully. The the state of Israel refers to the political entity that occupies that territory since 1948, a state of Israel, as opposed to the land of Israel in Hebrew, Eretz Israel, which is kind of the way Jews viewed it for 2,000 years. Terminology is so crucial when you're talking about this hotly contested territory. Uh, The term Palestine was also very much used by Jews and non-Jews. It was the accepted term for uh, much of the 19th century. All these terms have political connotations. And I don't mean by using one or the other to uh, impugn anyone's political views. I'm just trying to speak with some precision about the land. But here's the thing I want to say as kind of a, a general rule about approaching the state of Israel's history in that Everyone building a state there is confronted with a very fundamental dilemma. On the one hand, the Jews who settled there and want to create the state of Israel want desperately to have a state that is Jewish. That might seem obvious, but it is kind of like an ethno-state in the sense that after seeing the horrific abuses of the Holocaust, Uh, There's a very strong and legitimate feeling that there has to be one place where Jews can call home and that acts as a refuge, that it really should be an expression of the Jewish people. And, uh, of course, they feel they have a right to that after 2,000 years of maintaining their culture after their expulsion. On the other hand, or on the other end of the spectrum, they also deeply believe that it should be a democratic state. Like everybody involved, especially in the 1940s and 50s, they all believe that the form of government that should be established there should be democratic. And and therein lies a huge problem because not everybody living in the land of Israel is in fact Jewish. You've got a, a huge minority, you know, one in five Israelis is not Jewish. Most of them are Arab Muslims. And so how do you balance between having a Jewish state and a democratic state. Sometimes democracy suffers, sometimes the Jewish character of the state suffers. And this threading the needle of two difficult values is what characterizes the entirety of the Jewish experiment in the land of Israel, or I should say the state of Israel. In that period, Henry, before Britain leaves Palestine in 1947, Begin is fundamentally a, a paramilitary, isn't he? And at one point there is a bounty placed on his head, a, almost a Western-style dead-or-alive bounty. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. We spoke earlier about Ben-Gurion. His movement, which was the larger movement, the one that eventually took power, uh, was at odds with Begin's movement, which was known as the Irgun Tzva'ir Leumi, the, uh, I guess I translate it as the Organization of the Defense of the People. The movement under Ben-Gurion felt that, you know, they they opposed the British and they wanted the British out of there desperately, but they also felt that uh, they would one day have to come to terms with with England and with the the Western powers in general. And so there were sort of limits placed on the degree of actions they would take against the British. 
On the other hand, Begin was prepared to use much more aggressive tactics to drive them out, including tactics that you know could be described by some as even terrorist. The bombing of the King David Hotel is the the most notorious example, and there's there's a lot of details and conflict about this. You know, they there were calls in advance to let people know they should leave the building and things like that. But nevertheless, you have this conflict within the Zionist movement as to what are the ideal tactics to achieve their objective. Uh, Begin was uh, under bounty by the British. Um, in particular for his association with the King David Hotel bombing. But uh, he was also uh, persona non grata for the other Israelis or the other uh, Zionists who felt that he was besmirching the whole movement with these tactics. Hard to get a handle on who are the, quote, good guys versus the, quote, bad guys at this time. I guess it depends on your perspective. Um, but he, uh, Begin, went to... America around this time, I understand. And uh, Albert Einstein and Hannah Arendt were amongst some who had signed a letter condemning his party as a terrorist organization. Well, again, that's kind of like this. Is Israel going to be democratic or is it going to be Jewish? Begin leaned heavily into the Jewish side. And he says, you know what? If we keep with this negotiation and, and, you know, blathering on and on, it's never going to happen. And this is the imprint of Jabotinsky. Again, the paramilitary imprint, the idea that violence is needed to solve these problems. And uh, this was not the kind of ideal that the uh, the more socialist leaning Mapai under Ben-Gurion said, this is the way we're going to build the state. You know, they, they wanted to hold on to these democratic values, and Begin did not have the same degree of trust in democracy. He felt that the, the rest of the world was going to abandon the Jews, as they had in the Holocaust. There's a very long period, Henry, in the post-war settlement where Begin is on the outside still. He's forms a right-wing opposition to Ben-Gurion. And at that point, there probably aren't that many people who would correctly plot his future path to become prime minister. Uh, you're absolutely right. And I'm so intimidated by the amount of research that you have done. You know, you're really making me catch up to my A game here. So, <laughs> making you sweat, Henry. I know, really. because So here, here's the deal. You know, he's really focused on his goal. He's single-mindedly focused on his goal. He forms this party called Cherut, which means freedom. And um, this is, you know, we can understand a lot of the rest of Israeli politics as the sort of tension between the dominant left-wing movement and Cherut, which under Begin has its, you know, turning point in 1977. After 29 years in the opposition, I guess, you know, in, in England, you use the term loyal opposition. Mm. I'm not I'm not entirely sure if that should be applied in this case but but he was definitely uh he was dogged and determined and highly intelligent and uh he was focused on eventually putting in place the kind of vision he had what i think is so um well two things first of all uh, although he did not ascribe this democratic ideal uh he was uh, especially noted for his ability to be inclusive and big tent when it came to other Jews who were fighting for similar things. And that's why he found such a tremendous voice. Ironically, here's this Polish Jew who, you know, studied the Talmud and is in many ways, although he's definitely uh, an aggressive paramilitary figure, he would look in many ways like the ghetto Jew that was excoriated by the uh, left wing. He nevertheless finds an audience with the Middle Eastern Jews 
who are fleeing to the land of Israel, largely because they're being expelled from the Arab countries after uh, the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948. And they feel voiceless. And Begin is saying, no problem. I know what you want. And they're finding their message being echoed by Begin. That's what really propels him to electoral victory in 1977. And the other great, amazingly ironic thing about Begin is that you know, I've portrayed him so far as this incredible hawk. You know, he's definitely warlike. He's Jabotinsky and he's revisionist. Uh, you know, he's associated with terrorism by the British and the bombing the hotel. And yet, he's the guy who signs the first major peace deal with the neighbors. That is an incredible turnaround, a huge surprise, and uh, makes him truly a pivotal figure. And I think that's why, you know, when when Billy Joel, if we can go back to the, I think the whole reason for this podcast, <laughs> obviously I'm familiar with the song. It was an anthem of my youth. Uh, and I read a little bit about why Billy Joel wrote this song. And, you know, I went back and looked at the lyrics and I said, well, you know, here I'm, I'm a historian. I'm a historian of the Jewish people and so on in the 20th century in particular. And I thought, if I were to write this song, would I include Menachem Begin? I mean, why not? You know, so many other figures, Golda Meir, Ben-Gurion, you know, these are like really important figures. Why specifically Menachem Begin? And I think it's primarily because of this pivotal role that he played in making peace with Egypt. That was incredible. I mean, he, he and Anwar Sadat, president of Egypt, together shared the Nobel Peace Prize. And I do want to get into that. But I am curious, what do you think was behind Begin's stamina in his long stretch as the underdog? I mean, we know he was a sharp dresser. <laughs> we know he had his eye on the prize. He probably was good at holding a grudge. What enabled him to stay in the game? Aliza Begin, his wife, he was incredibly devoted to her. She was at his side throughout the entire process. Uh, she was his backbone. They had an incredibly devoted relationship. In fact, when she finally passed away, while he was in office, he, he simply could not continue anymore. And many of the missteps of his last uh, years in office can be attributed to the tremendous depression he felt uh, with the loss of his anchor and, and the fulcrum around which all of his work progressed. Did she share the zealotry and the ambition for the Jewish people that, that he had, or was it more a case of she just wanted her man to be happy? Oh, no, I would say definitely the former. She was as ideologically committed, but she was not a public figure. She definitely receded from, you know, achieving public attention or anything like that. But he would consult with her on every little detail of, uh, of his progress, his negotiations. And, and he didn't take a step without Aliza's knowledge in advance. Let's talk more, Henry, about the 1979 Camp David Accords, because, as you say, they seem extraordinary from the outside, but everything we've learned about Begin. And here he is albeit in talks brokered by the US President Jimmy Carter, sitting down with Egypt. Tell us a little bit more about this idea of land for peace. Right. This is, this is really probably the most important part of his life, in my humble opinion. We talked earlier this podcast about how, you know, the, the uh, Jewish settlers are coming into the land of Israel, joining the very, very small population of Jews that have lived there throughout the period and expanding the population. Arabs are also being attracted to this new settlement. There's Western investment and so on. And it's it's heading towards a political and ultimately a military conflict over who was going to control the territory. 
when it becomes clear to the British that the mandate is no longer viable, the British hand it over to the United Nations saying essentially, okay, here, you solve this. And the United Nations comes up with a rather ridiculous solution, but I'm not saying I could think of anything better, <laughs> in which they divided up more or less what is called the land of Israel today, the state of Israel, into seven sections. Three were to be given to the Jews, three were to be given to the Arabs, who would you know, later identify as Palestinians. Although, you know, this kind of strange patchwork quilt of seven territories was, you know, hardly economically viable and was demographically bizarre. Nevertheless, the idea of achieving statehood after 2000 years of exile was pretty tempting. And so the, the Jews accepted it in May of 1948. The Arab countries surrounding it, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan and Egypt did not. And that resulted in what the Israelis call the War of Independence and what the Palestinians call the Nakba or the catastrophe. Because in the context of that conflagration, which of course Begin was very involved with, and in particular involved with a, a specific massacre of a village called Der Yassin, it results in a massive exodus of Palestinians from their land into neighboring countries, which became the kernel of the Palestinian refugee issue. And the conquest by this young state, not only of the boundaries that was given to them by the United Nations, but also extra territory. Like they actually, after a very punishing war, they actually came out ahead of the game territorially. Jerusalem was divided, however, which was a huge blow to uh, the now Israelis, we can call them. Then they lived in a state of tension for the next 20 years. By the way, there's an earlier reference in this to, I'm sure you went over this in your podcast with the trouble in the Suez line. Oh, yeah. And then what mm -hmm. happens in 1967 is really the linchpin, the turning point. This is the period known as the Six-Day War, when it becomes clear that Egypt and Syria in particular are going to launch an attack on Israel. Israel decides to launch a preemptive strike against them, controversial, but ultimately extremely successful. And this state, which was smaller in the 1947 uh, partition plan of the United Nations, and then somewhat larger after the 1948-49 war, becomes huge, conquers the Golan Heights from Syria, conquers what will be called the West Bank of the Jordan River, including the whole city of Jerusalem, and this massive Sinai Peninsula, bring it right to the Suez Canal and, you know, almost within shouting distance of Cairo. And that's after 1967. Now what happens is in 1967, Israel is in charge of all this territory, which includes a significant number of Arabs who have to be somehow integrated into this new political entity. And a problem, by the way, which has not been solved to this day. Most of the left-wing socialist governments were saying, okay, this is it. We're waiting for someone to call us. Let's finally make peace. Give us back the land you conquered and we'll, we'll sign a peace treaty. That's what they, they waited for that phone call for about 10 years. They waited for that phone call. Uh, it never came. Some people on the right wing were saying, why are we waiting for a phone call? Let us annex these territories. Let's make them permanently part of the land of Israel. But Begin, surprisingly, when he saw that there was not going to be a phone call from Egypt or Syria saying, we'll give us back the land, we'll guarantee you peace. He began to engage in quiet diplomacy through third parties, 
sort of planting the, the seed of an idea after Anwar Sadat was able to bloody Israel's nose with a terrible war in 1973, he finally did call. He paid for this with his life because mm -hmm. he was assassinated by his own bodyguards who were very, very angry at the idea of making peace with Israel. Wow. But, but when that call came, uh, Begin was ready for it. And within a very short period of time, they had sketched out the deal where Israel would give the Sinai Peninsula back to Egypt and Egypt signed that tense, but nevertheless enduring peace accord that lasts to this day, thank God. It's making, it's definitely making more sense, Henry, now why Billy Joel might have mentioned Bake In. Have you got any theories why it affected this rock and roll musician all those thousands of miles away? You know, I would love to spend a whole hour just talking about <laughs> that question. That's a great <laughs> question. Because, you know, Billy Joel in many ways is kind of like a, a particular sort of typical New York Jew. We're all, by the way, similarly talented as he is. <laughs> I'm just joking about it. No, but, you know, he, he grew up, he was born in the baby boom. His, his father had fled Germany during the 1930s. And so, uh, but they were basically secular in, in orientation. He, in fact, uh, was uh, baptized as a Catholic when he was 11 years old. But it's nevertheless, you know, this is a period when, especially after the Six-Day War of 1967, where Jews everywhere were, no matter how limited their attachments to going to synagogue and observing the Sabbath and keeping kosher, they were all, worldwide Jews are sitting at the edge of their seats thinking that this incredible experiment of Israel was going to be destroyed in 67. And then when it survived and even thrived, it was like a source of incredible pride for Jews the world around. The ongoing hostilities with the neighboring countries was a source of great consternation. And when Begin broke that deadlock with this incredible peace deal, you know, it was transformational. And although Billy Joel may not have been as plugged in to the politics between Ben-Gurion and, and the Irgun and different organizations, things like that, when he saw that kind of thing happening, it must have made a tremendous impression on him as a young man that he would later enshrine it in the lyrics of this song. So his beloved wife dies in November 1982. And Henry, that seems to, in some ways, mark the beginning of the end for Begin as well. Yeah, definitely. He's, he's now a, a much older man. Uh, he has uh, younger rivals who have adopted certain elements of his political ideology, but not necessarily his pragmatism and his vision. The, the challenge for Begin, of course, was after the passing of his wife, he uh, lost, uh, you know, as Katie used this expression a, a little when we were off air of uh, his North Star, very appropriate. And um, he did not seem to have the same kind of focus on... Um, you know, the specifics of the implications of the policies he was enacting. Uh, he ultimately retires from government, but, you know, he was gone well before he retired. So unfortunately, his legacy was marred by the uh, events that occurred in the last years of his rule. And is there a sense, though, today that it, people appreciate his role in creating the state of Israel? Oh, absolutely. He, he's definitely a founding father of the state of Israel. Israelis will hotly argue uh, Israeli politics, and in fact, people all over the world will hotly argue Israeli politics, even if they don't have any skin in the game. And one thing we see about Begin is that he had, you know, fairly extreme views, but when 
the circumstances dictated, he was very willing to moderate those views for the sake of peace, as we see specifically with that incredible deal with Egypt, which is uh, undoubtedly one of the greatest diplomatic achievements of the era and really truly deserving of the Nobel Peace Prize. Well, thank you so much, Henry Abramson, for helping us understand this person whose name we pronounce differently every time we utter <laughs> it. So often happens on the show. Menachem Begin. That's what I'm going for. So thank you very much, Henry. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. So I was interested to get into this whole Begin scene. Our man, Henry, put us in the picture quite beautifully. But I was talking to my fancy man about Menachem Begin the other day, and he was telling me that when he was a schoolboy, during the Camp David Accords in the late 70s, some classroom wag came up with this bouncy bit of doggerel, and it goes like this. Begin again at the beginning, said Begin. Say that again, said Sadat. Very intelligent schoolboys, Katie. Very quippy, very quippy. Maybe it was the Noel Coward school for young men. Whenever I hear the phrase Camp David, when you grow up in the UK, you don't know that it's a place. It always sounds like someone's gay friend. <laughs> Is that Butch David we're discussing or Camp David? Oh, Camp David. Yeah, typical. If you would like another podcast to listen to before Katie and I return to your ears, why not try The Secret History of the Estonia? This is an investigation into the mystery of why a passenger ferry sank back in 1994, killing 852 people. This was Europe's worst peacetime shipping disaster since the Titanic. And many people remain convinced the truth behind the sinking has been covered up. 
Well, here's where journalist Stephen Davis comes into play. He hears unbelievable eyewitness accounts from survivors and speaks with investigators who've been working on the case for years. It is fascinating stuff and ends up delving into espionage, spies, and Cold War. What else do you want? Definitely worth checking out. If you want to get in touch with maybe a story or a guest idea for the show, please get in contact with us. On email, we are fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. On social media, we are at Spread That Fire on Instagram and Twitter. And make sure you check out our merch collection, because you know you love to shop shoppers, at spreadthatfire.com. Katie, next week, where are we going? We are going to check out a man whose name rhymes with bacon. <laughs> What's Billy done there? Reagan. <gasps> nice work, Billy. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.